Well, hello, CMYK community and beyond. If it's your first time listening in part of this podcast and this community, welcome. My name is Matt, and today we're kind of, we're not kind of, we are continuing on in a series of talks that we've been in the last few weeks entitled Roots, Branches, and Fruits. We're dealing with how the church came to be what it is today, all of its intricacies, the weird things, the goofy things, the good things. And I'm pretty excited about where we're headed today, a little nervous about where we're headed today as well, because this is a big concept and idea, but for me has been really helpful in trying to understand the landscape of 2018, particularly in America, and why uh, things are the way they are. So before we jump into it, though, I want to mention that this coming weekend, so March 4th, Uh, That's Sunday. We're going to be doing something that's a part of our regular rhythm as a community. We call them Sabbath gatherings. And the idea is this, that we're going to just take the Sunday off, take the weekend off. And uh, for some, that might just sound like we're lazy and we're bored and we're tired and we're uh, just going to, you know, not do anything. And for others, I hope you see that there's really an intention and a reason behind it that we kind of strategically take these Sundays off every six, seven or so weeks. And the reason is because our lives quickly, easily become just a product of all of our work. And we kind of look back at our lives and we evaluate who we are and we evaluate how we're doing based on the amount that we've accomplished, the number of things we can check off the list and say, look at how accomplished I am. We look at our lives and and see what kind of corporate ladders have we climbed, financial ladders have we climbed, cultural ladders have we climbed, how do people view us and see us, and we we base that on our accomplishments and what we create and make and do. And all of these things are good, work, creation, these things are good, right? But they are not the sum total of who you are. They are not the sum total of who I am, Matt Blakesley. And so within this religious tradition, within this faith tradition, is this thing known as Sabbath. And the idea is that in the midst of your work, you would take a period of time, we say 24 hours, to just do nothing. To not accomplish anything, to not check anything off a list, to not try to climb any kind of ladder on any level, uh, but to simply just find our lives as loved, embraced, significant, and important before we do anything because we are found to be loved and embraced for who we are, not for what we do or don't do. And so uh, as a part of our rhythm, regularly as a community, we just stop and pause and we don't even meet or gather on, We, and many of you know, we gather on Sundays at Art House Cinema and Pub uh, in Billings, Montana, and we don't even gather because we think even these gatherings can be a, a, a work, a box to check that we evaluate how we're doing based on whether or not we showed up to a place. And so um, where our gatherings are helpful, I think, uh, and this podcast is helpful, I think, we just stop from all of that work and say, you don't have to do anything, listen to anything, go anywhere, accomplish anything, but just simply know that you are loved and embraced and significant and to find your life there. And so we take 24 hours to just remind ourselves of that fact. And so clear your schedule with us. Don't do anything. Sleep in. Take naps. Eat a lot of really good food. Hang out with some really fun, enjoyable people around you and uh, find the creation and relationships to be significant once again around you. 
So that's coming next week, March 4th. So no gatherings at Art House, and then we won't be posting a podcast next week either because we hope that you join us in this practice of Sabbath and rest. All right, jumping into it. A few weeks ago, or excuse me, a few years ago, <laughs> I read this text by a phenomenal author named Phyllis Tickle. She passed away a couple of years ago, but she wrote this text entitled The Great Emergence, and it was one of the more transformational, significant things that I've read uh, in the last multitudes of years. So if you're looking for a good read, or if you're wanting to dive deeper into some of the things we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, I highly, highly recommend it. Phyllis Tickle and The Great Emergence. But what she talks about is this reality of the last 2,000 years of church history. What we see is that in the early common era or AD period, CE period of history, the roots of the church are planted. And these are not the roots that play in the band with Jimmy Fallon. These are the roots that we've been talking about over the last few weeks of this series. These roots are planted for what Christianity and the church is supposed to be. And what we see is that plays out over the next few hundred years. And there's ups and downs and things happen within the church, obviously, and they're trying to continually find their footing and ground and figure out what all of this stuff is. But around 550 to 600 AD, something happens. There's this dramatic, huge shift that takes place. And it centers around Pope Gregory I. He's the leader of the church at the time. And because of what Pope Gregory does, he comes to be called Gregory the Great. What he does is he shifts the church, he introduces some new things, and the church begins to go in a kind of unique and different direction for the next few hundred years. And this goes on and continues to move and evolve and change and form until we see this moment around 1054 CE that within church history is known as the Great Schism. And this is another giant shift that Phyllis Tickle talks about in her text, that everything is once again challenged, wrestled with, and there is this new direction this new path that the church begins to take, and it's founded in this moment known as the Great Schism. Well, this goes on and continues to evolve and move forward for the next few hundred years until we find this moment in 1517 CE around this guy named Martin Luther, and he starts this thing known as the Great Reformation. And once again, if you grew up in the Lutheran church, you know this, once again, there is this new path, direction, and shift for what the church is supposed to do and look like and be because of Martin Luther and his work, this great reformation. And here we are today in 2018. Now, if you've been doing the math at home, as I know you all are, if you've been doing the math at home, you probably recognize and see that these giant shifts and new directions for the church, they happen every 500 years. The first one being in the 500s with Gregory the Great, then 1054 with the Great Schism, and then the Great Reformation in 1517. And we now are in 2018. In other words, we are 500 years removed from the last great shift. And what Phyllis Tickle talks about is that here, in this moment in 2018, we are going through another shift. We are going through another moment where the church is finding new footing and new ground for what the next few hundred years are going to look like. And that to look at the last 2,000 years of history is to see that this is just normal and a part of this thing called church and humanity. And so, to zoom out and see all of these shifts, for me, 
has been incredibly helpful to understand why we are where we are today and incredibly helpful to understand, okay, maybe this is where this thing is headed from here. This is maybe where we need to go. Now, why would, we, why would I talk about this? Why would I bring up all of this history? And for me, it's because I, I think that church is a lot like baseball. If you've ever sat down and watched a baseball game, you probably know the basic rules. You've got players on the field and players in a batter box that are trying to hit a ball into the field or into the outfield, get a home run, whatever, and run around the bases and score points. That's the goal of the game. And you have defense on the field that's trying to not make that help that happen. And that's pretty much my knowledge of baseball. Uh, that's all I got. But something interesting happens if you watch a baseball game. There are these moments where like a player is beamed by a pitcher. So the batter is hit by the ball, by the pitcher. And everybody's like, ooh, that hurts. Oh, no, you know, it's a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. And then <clears throat> a couple innings later, <clears throat> the, the roles are opposite. And the, the team that got beamed, their pitcher throws a ball and hits and beans the player from the other team. And there's this part of you that thinks like, oh, it happened again, bummer. But then if you listen to the commentators, they say, oh, yep, we saw that coming. We, we knew that that was going to happen. And there's this part of you that's like, what? Really? Like, that's a thing? And you start to discover and find out, yeah, if a player gets beaned, you can just expect and know that the other team is going to get beaned as well, because that's just the way the game is played. It's this unwritten rule. Or maybe you've seen moments where a player will hit a home run. And then they'll flip their bat as, as they leave home plate, and they'll maybe take their time running around the bases. And meanwhile, everybody's yelling at this, this player. Everybody's upset and mad. And there's been moments in history of baseball where some, a player will flip their bat and take their time around the field, and everybody on the other team will come out to fight and take on this one player. Why? Why? Well, because there's this unwritten rule in baseball of if you hit a home run, don't flaunt it and don't flip your bat. These are things you just don't do. There's been moments where a player hits a home run on a team, and the next batter gets up, and he hits a home run on a team, and everybody's upset with them. Why? Because you just don't do that. You don't hit a home run back to back. That's disrespectful to the pitcher. That's disrespectful to the other team. And there's been moments where they say it's clearing the benches, where both teams will leave their benches to meet on the field in an epic showdown fight, which is not that at all if you've ever watched it. It's just a bunch of grown men standing around looking at each other angrily. That's what happens. But everybody on the bench must get off the bench and go out into the field, even though they're not fighting, even though they have nothing to contribute or bring to the conversation or the conflict. It's just what you do. Everybody gets off the bench because that's the statement that you're making. And then there's these moments where they clear the bullpen, this place in the back of the field where the pitchers warm up, and they run from the other side of the field to come and stand around with all the other grown men and look angrily at one another. This is a thing. Like, this is a thing. And it has nothing to do with the actual movement of getting points on the scoreboard. It has nothing to do with hitting the ball and running around the bases. It's just these unwritten rules that have come out of a game that's over 100 years old. And so there's all, this, all these conversations about learning to respect the game because this is what you do. Even though it doesn't play into and it isn't a part of the actual game, it's just what it's supposed to be, they say. Church 
is this thing that has 2,000 years of history. And these different moments that play into why we are where we are today. And in 2018, we find ourselves regularly wrestling with, why is this a thing? And just like watching a baseball game, feeling like, this is just silly. Like, this is just ridiculous that this would be such a strong, dominant, kind of emotionally filled conversation. Because it doesn't feel like it plays into the roots that were planted by Christ and his early followers. It doesn't feel like the running around the bases trying to score points kind of move. It just feels like a bunch of unwritten rules that we're fighting for and we're angry about. Is this really the way that it's supposed to be? And for me, sitting down and watching baseball with somebody that truly understands the game, it brings insight into it that I can actually enjoy it, or I can choose to at least point at it and say, yeah, that's silly, and I I know what's going on now. And I think church can be the same thing. The reason that Phyllis Tickles work, and the reason that I want to spend the next few weeks talking about these different giant shifts within church history, is because it helps us, it helps you, it helps me understand why we are where we are today, and these unwritten rules of church that just feel so archaic, so weird, and so broken at times, to go, oh, that's where that comes from. And to be able to say, well, maybe that's a good thing, or to be able to say, that's really not the way that it should be, and there's this root that we need to get this thing back to. And so today what I want to look at is specifically this first major shift within church history around the 500 CE that revolved around Pope Gregory I. He's also known as Gregory the Great. And for all the things that could be said about this guy, he did a lot and there's a lot happening. So this is incredibly surfacey, just so you know. But Pope Gregory I was simply two things. First, he was a monk. He came from the life of a monastery. And this is important because he was able to bring in some different liturgies and prayers and practices into the church in a unique way as being the leader of the church, the Pope at the time. But the other thing that's important to note about Gregory I is he was a politician. This was a monk with some swagger. And he, was the, he, had to, he had the ability to work a deal, to get what he wanted, when he wanted. He could talk to different parties and people involved and make you know, all the pieces move in the right direction. This is what a politician does. And Gregory was an expert at this. He knew how to make things happen. And the reason that this is so important, and it plays so significantly within church history, is because Gregory comes to power when this world power known as Rome is starting to crumble. Up to this point within church history, the church has always been under Roman rule, under the foot of the Roman Empire. And after a while, Rome begins to crumble, and its leadership is no longer strong. And so there's this vacuum of power in the world, this vacuum of power in this region. And what Pope Gregory is able to do is he's able to move in as a politician. He's able to move in as a leader of the church and begin to see power be connected to the church. That rather than the church being under the power of Rome, all of a sudden the church has the potential to be the one in the driver's seat in political power. And for the first time, we see this concept and idea that the church is connected to power. And this is something that has played out over the last 1,500 years. This idea that church is winning, Christianity is winning, when we have the seat of power, 
in politics. It started to not move outside of politics and become finances as well, that the church is winning. Christians are doing what they're supposed to be doing when we hold financial power as well, and that this is the goal and the objective that we should be going after, because the church is connected to power. It comes from this moment in the 500s with Gregory the Great and continues to grow and grow into this branch that it is today. It's an interesting thing, because for me, we look at the current groundwork of the United States of America, And there's this strong undercurrent, and it's not really an unspoken rule because it's really said a lot, and that is that America is a Christian nation. And so in that, the church and Christianity is winning when we hold the seat of power, and that something is not right, something is broken if we don't hold that seat. Many of us grew up in homes that the idea of someone in financial power and political power that didn't hold our Christian ideals, if they were going to move into a seat of power, that there was something so wrong and messed up about that. And everything in us wanted to fight against that because we felt like, no, this should be the church. And we wondered, okay, is the church losing? (laughs) Have we lost the plot? Because we're supposed to be in power and in significance. For many, the idea that America is a Christian nation means that we have the ability to create this Christian utopia that we want, and we always get what we want as followers of Christ. And anything different than that is terrifying to us and to some. This is why we see we're in this current state of every politician that's elected has to figure out how do I get the Christian vote? And we wrestle with, is this the way that it's supposed to be? Should the church be connected to political and financial power? I mean, what do you do when the most powerful person in the world when the leader of the free world is someone that claims to be a Christian and is someone that is elected because of Christians, people within the church, voting for them and putting their support behind this person. All the while, this person, in his rhetoric, in his life, in his politics, seems so far from the roots from the person of Christ. What do you do with that? For some, this is okay, because the church is connected to power, and so we just, whatever we got to do to keep our name and our ideals in power, that's always the goal. And no matter what this guy does or says, it's okay, because this is God's plan, and God's the one that put him there, and there's these ideas that they can say to make everything fine. But for others, this is maybe why Christianity in the church just doesn't work anymore. Because it's on a, on a much larger level than baseball. <laughs> Where, yeah, there's these unwritten rules, this undercurrent of Christianity must be connected to power, but there's this part of us that goes, that's just silly. And that it shouldn't be that way because this is just broken and messy and wrong. For me, it leads me to this question, what's established with Gregory the Great? Is this really the way that it should be? Is this really what Christ had in mind and the early followers of Christ had in mind? Is the significance and beauty of the church found because we hold political power 
or we hold financial power? Is this really the end game that we should play? Or is there simply something here through the last 1,500 years of history that we go, oh, that's why it is the way that it is? It also leads me to ask the question of, okay, I, I think that the church should hold on to, I should, should be this influencer, this power in the world and in culture. I really believe that. But what does this power look like? Because power is quickly and easily defined as simply one word. It's control. Power is seen as your ability to have what you want, when you want, to go where you want, when you want, to have employees or in historically servants, slaves, to do your bidding. This is what someone in power looks like. You have all the money in the world that you could ever need, and you have all the political influence in the world that you could ever want. You're shaping the world the way you desire. This is what power looks like. It's control. And you take this idea, and you have to ask, okay, is this what we see Jesus working to do in his life? There's this really interesting moment towards the end of the life of Christ, where he rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. And this is shortly before his crucifixion on a cross. But as many of us know, he has this triumphal entry, this significant thing as he rides into a donkey into town. It says most of the crowd, so there's this crowd that shows up, and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, Jesus, and that followed him, they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So this isn't just Jesus kind of slipping into town unnoticed. This is a giant, significant movement, a crowd that is formed that is celebrating him with some of the strongest language within Judaism that you could say about someone, that he is the son of David. It's basically labeling him as their king. It doesn't get more celebrative and significant than this moment. Matthew goes on and he says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Everybody in the city knew what was taking place. And they were asking, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus has a following. He is celebrated. This is like Taylor Swift levels of celebration that's happening in this moment. But as we know, a couple days go by and Jesus is arrested And Jesus goes before this council and eventually before this Roman ruler, leader of the day, named Pilate, where they're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus because there's been this uprising that wants to see Jesus taken down. And Pilate, as this political leader, is really wrestling with whether or not he should really take down and actually crucify, kill this man, Jesus. And Luke puts it like this. says that Pilate addressed the crowd once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting. And this is the same crowd in many ways that just celebrated him as their king. They kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time, Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. And so here's this scene of a leader, Pilate, being swayed by the crowd. 
And this crowd that was once hailing Jesus as their king, he was the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. You don't get higher praise than that. All of a sudden, things have turned and flip-flopped that they want him to be killed, crucified. There's this tradition that we see within the scriptures that Pilate would traditionally release a prisoner at this time of the year to the crowds, whoever they would choose as just a goodwill gesture towards these people. And so Pilate, once again, tries to get out of it and say, hey, I could release Jesus to you, who's really done nothing but spoken and, and, and hasn't really broken any laws, according to Pilate, or I could release Barabbas. And Barabbas was known as a murderer, a killer. And the crowd says, no, we want Barabbas that they would much rather have this murderer killer with them than Jesus. There's something profound here for me that we see the weight that a crowd brings to wanting their leader and their power to be found in politics and finances. And when Jesus shows up on the scene in Jerusalem and he doesn't go after the throne, he doesn't go after financial significance or influence, he simply has a different way. The crowd turns. Because Jesus, in his power, in his significance, and in his influence, doesn't seem to be that interested in political power or financial power. And so we've got to wrestle with this. Here in 2018, we've got to look at our tendency and our desire as humanity, as people, in the last 1,500 years of history, our desire to create these utopias and make sure that those in power are reflective of everything that we want. And if that's not happening, then the church and Christianity is losing. And we've got to ask, is this the way of Christ? Or is this something that was just introduced starting 1,500 years ago that we're holding on to? And maybe, just maybe, there's a different kind of power that Jesus is interested in. Because if he's not interested in that, If he's not interested in political or financial power, then what is it? And when I look at the life of Christ, the power that we see in who he was, was not on those two common things, but we we see it revolve around really two big acts. One is that he gives his life away. He shows his power, his significance, and his influence by his willingly breaking open his body, and pouring himself out for the suffering of the world. This is the work of Christ. This is the power of Christ. And on top of that, the story and the message of the gospel is Jesus continues to find himself with outsiders, those on the outskirts. And he chooses to see, listen, hear, and embrace those that the rest of society has cast out. He talks about this idea of learning to love your enemies and the power of that. This is what power for Christ looks like, giving your life away and choosing to see those outside of yourselves. And so we must wrestle with, is this the power that we truly choose to truly believe in? Or do we lean into, do we find ourselves with the rest of what humanity can quickly find that power knows in politics and finance? Or do we see Christ and say, no, there's a new, a different, a better way to go about this? 
And this isn't for me a, a call to disengage from politics or disengage from anything influential on the financial level. No, engage in those things and be a part of those things and vote and know what's going on. Yes, 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 yes. But to understand that church and Christianity, maybe just maybe we don't judge how we're doing and we don't judge winning based on whether or not we have the right person in office or whether or not we have all the finances on our side. Maybe there's a different level of winning and a different level of power that we go after, that we continue to ask ourselves the question, am I choosing to see significance and power wherever I am and whatever's going on? Whether it's the foot of Rome on top of us or whether it's a government that we don't agree with, are we choosing to see the power that we have to continually see the outsider, see the other, love our enemies like Christ, and to be someone that gives ourselves away for those in need around us? And we choose to lean into that power. Because I don't believe that church, Christianity, is winning when we have political power, financial power. I actually believe that that's something that's pretty broken and can mess all of this up, where these roots were planted of what Christ and the church should be about, and we lose the plot so quickly and so easily. So for you, and where you are with your family, where you are with your friends, your coworkers, the city you live... Are you someone that's choosing to see the power of this message of Christ and to choose to see, okay, am I engaging in this winning work of giving my life away and seeing the outsider, or am I someone that's maybe gotten caught up in something that's got deep, it's a a big branch, it's it's something that's significant, this 1,500-year history that started with Gregory the Great. And for me, as I mentioned earlier, What this does is as I interact with friends and family members that have a Christianity that is very driven by whether or not political power and financial power are a part of it, that winning is when they have the right people in office, it gives me context, just like baseball, to go, oh, that's where that's coming from. But rather than potentially getting frustrated and angry, and rather than trying to get in a shouting match and just argue someone down, I can choose to do what we see Christ do with the crowds in that moment with Pilate, to continue to give my life away, to continue to see the other and the outsider. And maybe, just maybe, that other and outsider is that person across the table from me that calls themselves a Christian, but is so driven by this idea of political and financial power, then I need to learn to hear, listen, embrace them as well, because that's powerful. And so this is our work, and this is what church is about, and I believe as we go, as you go this week and engage in whatever it is you're engaging, that you would hopefully find your life in this seat of power. And where there's this temptation to always look towards political power and financial power, that we see the message, the life of Christ, the roots of the church be found in the context of your life and your community. May CMYK, may we be a force of influence and significance in Billings, Montana, but it's not because we're trying to elect each other into offices and get more and more money. It's because we're working hard to give our lives away and see those outside ourselves. I love you. And I hope you know that if there's anything that we can do for you, we're here. And uh, it's part of the reason we call this a community, because there's a group of people that want to know you and want to be a part of whatever it is that we can be. So let us know. And remember, 
No podcast next week, Sabbath gathering, so please take the day to rest and play, and we'll be back in a couple weeks as we continue on in this series.